You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. Alright, welcome to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up Podcast, and we are glad you're here, especially my guest. Condi Nest, those two words store up vivid images of soft white sand, swing palm trees, warm tropical breeze with a beautiful seaside hotel in the background. Condi Nest magazine pictures take us to where we all long for, which is tranquility. However, Condé Nest also happens to be a magazine publisher of which Vanity Fair is one of them. And according to a demographic research conducted by the Essence magazines, states that Vanity Fair's total circulation is about 1,197,000 issues and members. Additionally, the target audience for Vanity Fair, quote, is a female with an average age of 452 Directed towards predominantly white women. I never knew that. Well, I didn't either. You're telling me something new. So that's what Kindness and Vanity Fair magazine is. Now, to these followers of Vanity Fair magazines, the writers of the Vanity Fair magazine often influence the reader's taste, attitude, and opinions. And my guest has done his share of reigning as a columnist slash celebrity interviewer for the Vanity Fair magazine for over two and a half decades. In that time, according to Nicholas Kristof, my guest was, quote, one of Vanity Fair's most provocative and provoking interviewers. And we shall find out why he was so. So what has my guest been up to subsequently since his departure from Vanity Fair? We are going to catch up with him even though he's had a very busy day today. And hopefully, in the process, we may also get insight into state of the magazine world, such as Condi Nez, because he knows it from inside out. Meanwhile, he has also published a book entitled Anyone Who's Anyone, which is a tell-all book from his writing days. With that, we welcome to the mic, George Wayne. How are you, George? I'm very good, and I'm sorry I was a bit late, but I'm happy to see you, Augustus. Our uh, pleasure's all, all ours, and I'm glad uh, we finally connected. How was your day? My day was very busy. You know, even though it's freezing and, and was basically on the quasi-lockdown again, um, you know, I wanted to schedule this meeting next week, but you guys didn't want to do it, so I'm here now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You're but a- I love that opening. You know, yeah, I spent 20 years at Vanity Fair as a, a columnist. One of the, you know, the, when you write for a magazine like Vanity Fair, which is the crown jewel of Condé Nast, it's like being part of the Galactico. You know, the Galactico is like, you follow soccer, Real Madrid? Yes, yes. You know, it's like being a Galactico with Real Madrid. Absolutely. And um, yes, but we have to make it clear that I don't write for Vanity Fair right now, which is a shame and a shock and disgusting. But we could get into that if you want to. We will. I spent, I spent 22 years there. 
and um, interviewed as my, my book, my compendium, my book, Anyone Who's Anyone, The Astonishing Celebrity Interviews from 1987 to 2017. And um, I left Vanity Fair 2018. That's when the contract ran out. So, and they didn't renew it, which, you know, because there was so much upheaval and so much change. There's a new editor-in-chief, and I guess I wasn't part of her. She didn't want me as part of her team. I don't know. I'm assuming, whatever, because Braden Carter, who was the editor who preceded Radhika Jones, who's now the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, um, she wanted to sort of purge. It was a mass purge that went on. So there was a purge, you know, it was, you should know about Purge. You played a you played a dictator in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna cover all that, George. Uh, but before we get to those uh, chapters of your life, I want people to get to know you as a human being and who you are. So let's take a uh, memory lane. You know, check a little walk down the memory lane because you're a very unique person in a number of different ways. Number uh, first of all, you were born in a beautiful country called Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica. Is that, that right? Correct. That's correct. Yes. And that's where born your and life and raised. Yes. Yes, and that's where your story of your entire life begins. Now, right. I, I could think of a number of other places where I could be born besides Jamaica, but if you had a choice of being born in Jamaica, who would pass that up? <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> you could do a whole lot worse. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I am very proud of my heritage, as I'm sure you are, and um, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, this country that we now live in, the United States of America, has always welcomed and been always been so open and, and has always been the dream for so many of us across the globe, across the globe, and, and it will remain so. And I was lucky enough to have a family, a mother and a father, who were lucky, blessed enough to be able to send me abroad to go to college. So I was a student, I was a kid in boarding school, 16 years old, and the school nurse took a liking to me for some reason, the boarding school. And she gave me Interview Magazine to read for the first time in my life in, I guess it was about 1979. And I picked up Interview Magazine and I was, I was just like, oh my God, that was like my eureka moment. You, you know, were smitten okay. by it. Yeah, I was like, oh, I, this is what I want to do. I want to go and work. I want to meet Andy Warhol. I want to... <laughs> I want to go and write for Interview Magazine. And that's basically how I, you know, decided that I want to be a journalist. That was quite telling. And I'm old enough to know Andy Warhol, by the way. So, Did you I, meet Andy? No, no. And I said, I'm old enough to know Andy Warhol. So, so am I. I know where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, now, um, you, were, you were raised in Kingston, Jamaica. Is that right? No, I was raised in Mandeville, Jamaica. Mandeville. I was yeah. born in Kingston. Mm -hmm. but raised in Mandeville. Now, Mandeville is, no one really knows. People know, you know, who go to Jamaica think of Montego Bay or the thing of Big Rail, the, the tourist destinations. But Mandeville is right in the middle of the island. They call it Little England because it's very cold for Jamaican standards. It's very, very British. It's very sort of like foggy mornings and uh, that sort of thing. But it's a beautiful town right in the heart of Jamaica. And, um, gorgeous parish. Of course, it's not surrounded by water because it's right in the middle of the island, but it's a beautiful little town, and that's where I grew up. And did, then you I have, went, did you have tea at four? Tea at four? Yeah, did you have an afternoon tea at four o'clock? <laughs> well, in Jamaica, the afternoon tea is rum punch. 
<laughs> I could appreciate that. I think that's a better taste. Yeah. No, so, we did, you know, Jamaica, of course, a British colony. And then we adapted so many things about, the, you know, the, the whole um, British empire. But taking tea was never really one thing that kind of took hold in Jamaica. Or I, I, and I'm assuming that taking tea was not something that other islands did either. I guess it was too too um, warm to take tea. You want to be out on the beach and the sands, right? That makes sense, but, um, yes. But in, but, in, but in so many other ways, you know, the influence of the British Empire on, on, on its colonies, and I know in this correct political age, people don't want to talk about colonies, but it is what it is. And, you know, you can't erase your history. So, you know, you just adapt and, and, and appreciate the best parts of the history. I right? understand. I, so, absolutely. So um, we didn't really have tea. We had jerk chicken <laughs> and rum punch. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Now, now, you ended up at a boarding school, as you, you were saying. What was the reason you ended up at a boarding school? Well, I went to, I went to like, the Eton of the West Indies. I went to one of the best boarding school in the Caribbean, actually, because pe- uh, parents send their kids from all over the Caribbean to Monroe College. Monroe is in the parish of St. Elizabeth in Jamaica. And um, I, I didn't question with my parents you know, decided to send me away to boarding school. I never questioned that. But looking back over the many, 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 many years since then, I realized it's probably the best thing they ever did to send me to learn how to live on your own, basically. And I mean, and if you went to Monroe College in Jamaica, you know the cold water showers every morning, the bad food, the bullying, all that stuff kind of prepared you for life, you know? And so I always loved and, and appreciate the fact that my parents sent me away to boarding school because coming to New York City after that prepared me to live in the, tough, <laughs> the toughest town in the world, okay? Yeah. Well, probably not. I shouldn't say that because there's so many people across the, the globe that experience so much more, so much worse. But it prepared me for life in New York City and dealing with the concrete jungle, as Bob Marley used to call it. I understand. I went to military school uh, myself when I was in uh, when I was young, so exactly. I can sort of empathize with you. Now, did your parents make a lot of economic sacrifice to uh, send you to that boarding school? But of course they do. I mean, you know, the first child of four to send you abroad to go to college. Well, first, well, boarding school, and then from boarding school to go to college in America. And um, you know, it was at the point when I was deciding to go abroad to go study in college what I was going to major in. But of course, I couldn't tell my parents at the time that I, was, I wanted to be a journalist. Because, you know, in the third world, you don't send your child abroad to study in America to become a journalist. You send them abroad to become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. I hear you. And, um, and so that was a big deal. And of course, I couldn't tell my parents at the time that I was going to be a journalist. So the first two years, I said, I'm going to study law. But I knew in my heart that I wanted to be a, a, a writer, a journalist. I loved popular culture. I loved when my father would come home every night and he'd have the Time magazine weekly in his, like, you know, in Natasha case, and, or, or the Jamaican newspaper, the, the Daily Gleaner, which is kind of like the New York Times of the West Indies. I always loved when my father would come home and I would grab the newspaper from him and go into my room and read. So I loved to read. I loved keeping up with what was going on in the world. And I loved 
popular culture. So I went abroad. I went to the University of Georgia. You live in a college town, right? You're in Chapel Hill. Yes, right? I am. Yeah, well, yes, yes. I know what a college town feels like. <laughs> exactly. And I went. To, I was in college in Athens, Georgia. So you you're a bulldog. Oh, I'm yeah. A, I'm a bulldog. I've been to Athens. It's a nice little community. Athens Good. is a gorgeous town. Good barbecue. A gorgeous college town. But I had no idea when I went to school in, in Georgia as a freshman, a kid, you know, from Jamaica, in America. I, I had no idea that Athens, Georgia was, at the time, the coolest college campus in America. You know? How so? Because R.E.M., the bands, the B-52s. Oh, yes, yes. RuPaul. Yeah. They were all there. How it about happened that? while I was a freshman. You know, it was the heart wow. of the counterculture. It was the heart of the counterculture in the United States. And I didn't know that. But that's always been kind of like, you know, my sort of journey through this life of things that just like happened that you really didn't understand. And, but turned out to be like amazing. Absolutely. So Athens was the coolest of the coolest college campuses in the U.S. at the time. And probably still is. I think it's cooler than it's not Chapel, uh, Chapel Hills. <laughs> Well, well, I know they have a great football team. So I love the Bulldogs. Yeah, when you produce Herschel Walker, you know that's. I was there with Herschel Walker. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember when he was playing, nineteen eighty-one or so. He was. Yeah. Yeah. The amazing part about Herschel—it was huge. Oh yeah, you. Is it true? Let me ask ask you: Is it true that Herschel Walker never lifted weights because he would just do push-ups and that sort of thing? You know what? The funny thing is, when I was in when I was in Athens. (laughs) <laughs> I got a job actually, you know, as a as a kid, um, interning at, at the athletic complex, because I was like I wanted to be around jocks, you know. And I I remember going to work, and Herschel Walker was such a star. He was so huge, blah 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 blah. But I didn't care about Herschel Walker. I was more interested in the quarterback. Ah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I heard that. He, he was a star. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and especially now in 2020, as we approach 2021, and what just happened with, you know, the past election and the shock of shocks to think that Herschel Walker was supporting Donald Trump. Well, let, let's leave it at that. <laughs> I'm just listening. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me go back. Uh, you also stated that when you were younger, that... Uh, as a teenager, when this teacher who took interest in you showed you the interview magazine, you right. were smitten. Now, what was it about that uh, magazine that you really were attracted to that um, really influenced the rest of your life? I guess I was just looking at the shallow things. I was looking at all the pictures with Andy Warhol and all the celebrities and hanging out at Studio 54 and this and that and the whole glamour. Interview was such a glamorous rag, you know. And But what was most noteworthy was, was the way Andy... Warhol conducted an interview. I think that the lasting impact on all that had was the fact that it kind of directed my path. Because after reading Andy Warhol conducting a celebrity interview for, in, for his magazine interview, that was where I kind of realized my path, and this is what I want to do. And so I, in my years that followed, always had Andy Warhol in the back of my mind when I sat to interview a celebrity, whether it was Carrie Fisher, or whether it was Charlton Heston, or whether it was Mark Wahlberg, or whether it was more than the 200 or 300 
major celebrities and, 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 and show business personalities that I've interviewed for Vandy Fair with all that time. So for me, that was, that was always what I take away from that. That's the great. That Andy conducted an interview, the sort of um, informal, really sort of like um, chatty, conversational approach to conducting an interview. Someone I from Andy. That's great. And someone who's uh, comfortable in his own skin, you know? Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you are probably the closest thing to uh, Neil in the world today. You know what? That's the best thing you've ever said. You know, oh, thank you. You know, you're fried up podcast. <laughs> I thought fried up was a funny concept. You know how Asians fry everything up in their yeah, food. Fried and up. if you, hey, whatever you're cooking, if you fry it up, it'll fried taste up. better anyway. <laughs> Either that or it'll kill everything that's in there. So I like, let's, let's call it fry it up and see what comes out. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're going to fry it up today, baby. There you go. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Obviously, are highly intelligent because to come from um, another country into the United States uh, academic world right. is not an easy endeavor, and I, and you did it. Not so, at all, especially you know going to the south. <laughs> yeah, it was very difficult. Yeah. It was it was very difficult. The first three years, I will admit, the first three years of my college experience were very difficult because I had to navigate the whole um, racial undertones, which I never grew up with in Jamaica. Right. Because we never looked at, we never looked at race and, and, you know, because Jamaica is such a melting pot. You know, the motto for Jamaica, the, the coat of arms for the country is out of many, one people. And we were raised to believe that out of many, one people. Going to school in Athens, Georgia was a, a yeah, a rude awakening, because uh, that was the first time in my life I, I had to grasp that I had to understand the racial overtones of um, life in the United States. Yeah, and I'm sure and that... Go ahead. It was very difficult. It was very I'm, difficult. Sure, I'm sure the general but, society... But at the same time, you know what? I was raised to, like look, to look above it all, just focus on what you love, focus on humanity, focus on the fact that you are raised to understand that we're all the same and that as the National Code of Arms for the Jamaica says, out of many, one people. And that was yep. always my mindset and always I think, is. I think it's like there's some like Utah's uni, something like a dollar bill, out of many, one. So that's what the world exactly. is anyway, you know? Exactly, exactly. Now, what did you major in college at Georgia? Journalism. Journalism and English. Yeah. Okay. And what was your first step out of there after you graduated? So after I graduated, um, well, the third year I finally told my parents, you know what, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be a, I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. And I was kind of shocked that they, my mother, my father, German French, they kind of like, okay. I was shocked. I really thought they were going to be bad at me. 
for wanting to be a journalist. But they said, okay. And when I graduated, I moved to New York City on a one-way ticket on Eastern Airlines, which, you know, that would kind of tell you exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I moved to New York. And that, that's where the dream began. The dream began for me then. Now, when, and, you, when, and you, I, when I moved to New York City, my first job was in advertising because yes. at, the time, at the time, being a copywriter was a big, kind of like cool job to have, advertising. It was kind of like the Mad Men era. Well, a little bit after that, but it was kind of like similar. Advertising yes. was a big, kind of like cool job to have. And I was a copywriter. I worked in a few, with a few major yeah. advertising agencies, yeah. but I hated it. So you were a junior advertising copywriter, right? Probably on Madison yeah. Avenue somewhere? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, worked, I worked with a, a big conglomerate called N-W-A-Y-E-R, AIR, mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. advertising agency. And my first job was working as a junior writer on J.C. Penny. Mm-hmm. And the Bahamas tourism account. Now, most people who are not in the marketing in general and advertising in particular may not be familiar with what a copywriter does. Could you explain to us what a, a copywriter does and what you did? A copywriter is the genius who creates the the, um, the slogans, the lingos, the uh, who writes, who creates the advertising, who creates the print ads you see, who creates the TV commercials you see, who comes up with the best catchy slogans for the brand. For instance, um, I guess, what's a good one now? Because I've been out of the business a while. But back in the day, J.C. Penny, you're looking smarter than ever, J.C. Penny. <laughs> or, you know, if you're like American Airlines, whatever. The, low, the, 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 the copywriter comes up with that slogan, that tag, that re- resonates with the general public. Mm-hmm. So the copywriter had to understand not only the brand, but also the market and how mm-hmm. people are going to react to the advertising and, and the whole like spiel that you're going to present to them. A lot of psychology involved, right? It is. It is. Now, was it like any other industry where you do all the hard work and then the upper management gets all the credit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that you did all the hard work, all yeah, the jingles exactly. and all the research. Exactly. And then you packed exactly. it upstairs. Exactly. <laughs> so I did the advertising thing for like three years, but I knew that that whole corporate structure was not for me. I, well, I, I grew to realize that, that I didn't want to work at a, mag, at, at, at a corporate behemoth a big advertising agency and have to go in there every morning and deal with all the politics and all the, you know, all the drama of corporate life in America or corporate life anywhere in the world. So finally they fired me and I took that unemployment check and I went out every night trying to meet Andy Warhol because I realized that, you know what, I better jump on this now. I don't want to be stuck in a job that you hate, which so many people go through stuck in a job that doesn't inspire them. But you got to do it, you know? And I wanted to break that mold. I didn't want to work in advertising anymore. I wanted to work at Andy Warhol's factory. And so I went out every night hoping to meet Andy Warhol. And I did. I met Andy. And I was like, oh, my God. When Andy Warhol walked into a room, 
to this day, I've never seen anything like it. It was like magic. Because you got to remember, this is, you know, the mid-1980s in New York City. I moved to New York City at the height of a pandemic, the first one. It was called the AIDS pandemic. Everyone was dropping dead. You know, it was such, it was such a traumatic, trying time. As a kid, personally, for me, you know, in the prime of my life, trying to explore who I am, whether that may be my sexuality, whether that may, you know, my, my chosen profession, and not being able to do so because it was such a tough, tough, trying time. So, you know, I like to tell people today that, you know what, I lived through one pandemic. I think I can try and live through another one. Absolutely. So it was very hard, but I did meet Andy and, and, and I did go and work for interview, but the, the fun, the, well, it's not funny. It's kind of sad, but Andy Warhol would walk into a room and I would see Andy and he's like, oh my God, hi, George. I, that made my day. Andy Warhol was recognizing who I was. And, you know, I, so the dream was coming. He's like, oh my God, Andy, I think I'm going to get a job at the factory. I just feel it. I'm going to be part of Andy's entourage. <laughs> that was a gift. That was a goal for any writer, any poet, any artist, any drag queen, any outlier of the culture, you know, because they knew, and that's, they knew. And in the 80s, it was second. It was, you know, the era of Jean-Michel Basquiat, who Andy discovered, you know, well, kind of, well, Andy really discovered, but, but it was kind of like that. It's like Andy latched onto Jean-Michel, and it's like, wow, if, if Andy could, like, see what I have, too, you know, that I'm a great writer, right? You know, I could work with this magazine. Maybe he would, like, give me a job. So my goal was to go out every night to the, to the Michael Todd room, the Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager's last nightclub, the Palladium, hoping to meet Andy or go to an art opening somewhere in the East Village, hoping to run into Andy because Andy went out every night. And when Andy walked into a room, it was like magic. It was like the whole temperature, the whole feeling just like shot through the roof. Everyone was so happy to see Andy because they knew he could change your life in a heartbeat. Now, what was Andy like, besides from his public persona, as an individual on one-to-one? -one? You know what? I didn't really get to see the, 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 the Andy behind closed doors. The Andy Warhol I know was, was, was Andy that presented himself to the public. Very shy, very cagey, very brief with his words. Hi, hello. Hi, George. I'm like, but that was enough. You know, but then he went to the hospital from minor surgery and never came out. And that was a big shock. That was like, that was like, what else could happen? So in, a, in essence, you know, my time in New York City at the beginning of my career, at my youth in the 80s, kind of reminds me a little bit of what we're going through right now in 2020. <clears throat> and, you know, it's like the state of anxiety this state of like, we're trying to have fun, but at least we could go out then. <laughs> now we can't even go out, we have to stay home. But it was kind of similar in the sense that we didn't know what was coming next, who was gonna drop dead. Someone you met two months before, all of a sudden is dead from AIDS. And, and you know, for like an, a, a 22 year old kid, that's hard to like, kind of like, kind of fathom, hard to like really understand and grasp. So it was very difficult. But Andy died, went to the hospital, he died 
But I did go on to work at Interview Magazine. I went to interview right after Andy died. The person we, who took over. Yeah, before you get to there, me. Let's, before you get there, let's talk about your, your own uh, launching of your own magazine, the avant-garde magazine called Rome, R-O-M-E, in 1982. Oh, give us right. some, Yeah, give us exactly. some history back behind that. What was the impetus of you doing that and how it turned out for you? Well, Rome. Okay, so now we have to, you kids who listen to Fry It Up. <laughs> you have to understand that Rome, <laughs> Rome, Rome was a magazine that I did on a Xerox copy machine. Okay? No one would hire me. I was like, you know, I got fired from the continent, from the, from the I got fired from the mag, from the air, from the advertising agency. And I said, you know what? This is the time for me to start to do what I want to do. So I wanted to work an interview, but I didn't have anything published. I didn't have anything to show a magazine editor. This is my work, my past work. So no one would hire me. So I basically started Rome, which was basically a print. I, I would like, it was like an arts and craft little Xerox magazine. It was a zine. They call it in the days, a zine. And I took Rome, all the ideas that I had presenting to all these people I want to get a job from and they wouldn't hire me. I just compiled them in one issue and I took it to a little shop in the East Village of New York City called Civilization. I said, would you sell my little Xerox printed zine, which I basically was like arts and craft. I stapled it. I wrote everything on a typewriter, printed it out on the copy machine and stapled it and took it to, to this shop. And I said, I'll put it over there. So they put it down. They said, we'll take it. We'll see what happens. They called me back two weeks later. They said, oh, my God, it's sold out. Blah, 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 blah. People love it. And this guy, David Hershkowitz, just called us and wanted to know who you are and wants to meet you. So David Hershkowitz was the founder and editor of a magazine called Paper, which was kind of like the hard, a cool, like, downtown counterculture rag, which was kind of a big deal. And so he called me. And he said, oh, I like your Rome magazine. Would you like to write for us? And so my first printed actual professional <laughs> byline was in Paper Magazine. On your turn. So I did Paper Magazine. I did Paper Magazine. And then I was producing Rome. And I kept like, doing it every time I could get some money. And then I, would took, it, I took Rome to uh, the Communist Building in my you know, crazy... <laughs> thinking, you know, when you're young, you do anything. You're like, you just go for it. You go for it. So I took Rome to the magazine shop in the Condonest lobby. And I asked the little couple that ran the shop, the magazine shop in the Condonest building, which at the time was at 360 Madison Avenue. I said, would you sell Rome? And she said, oh, put it over there. German, German couple, Helmut and Margaret, German emigrants <laughs> to the America. And <laughs> Margaret, I'll never forget this woman. She was this big, stocky German woman. And she was, everyone at Cundas loved her, loved Herman Margaret, because they ran a magazine shop in the, big, the lobby of the corporate office. And she was such a character. And she said, I'll put it over there. Anyway, Hel Margaret calls me maybe like a month later. She says, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Side new house. Just <laughs> and I went to her this morning, you got to bring more. <laughs> I'm like, what? 
So I See? took my magazine and, and Margaret says to me, oh man, you don't understand. Everyone in the building, they come down here and they buy that little Xerox magazine. And so I decided to write and sign new house a letter. Now sign new house is the Sion. He owned the brand. He's a big, big mega publisher of all the best magazines in the world. Sign new house. So I wrote him a letter, you know, in my bravado and my gall. I said, dear Mr. Newhouse, I still have the letter, Augustus. Dear Mr. That? Newhouse, I hear that you like Row Magazine. Why don't you buy it? Because, you know, I need to eat. I said, why don't you buy it? Not thinking that this man, this very important man in the world of magazine publishing, would even think about writing me back. Sign Newhouse wrote me back. I still have the letter. And he says, I love Rome. It's great. But I can't buy Rome. But I want you to go and talk to this woman. Now, he had just hired a woman, an editor, Linda Wells, to create a new magazine called Allure. And so he said, go talk to Linda Wells. So I went to Linda Wells at 360 Madison Avenue, which is the offices of Condonass. And she said, she sat me down. She said, what do you want? I said, I want a contract. I want to write. And I want to travel. The meeting lasted like five minutes. She says, okay. Now, these were the, go- the golden, this was the golden age of the magazine world. You know, this was, so that meeting lasted five minutes. I told her exactly what I wanted, and she agreed. So when you open this introduction and talking about sun and sea and blah, 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 <laughs> my first assignment for Allure Magazine, I was the first contributing editor on the magazine of Allure, my first assignment was to go to St. Bart's for three weeks. Well, that's a tough three assignment. Three weeks. <laughs> three weeks. Yeah, that's tough. That would never happen today. <laughs> that would never happen today. Good old days. Go St. Bart's and talk about St. Bart's was just becoming the new fashion island where everybody was going to. It's kind of like the hottest island in the Caribbean to go, you know, resort and see sex and sun or whatever you're thinking about. And so I went to St. Bart's met all the supermodels, I met all the fashion photographers, all, everybody, including Anna Winter, went to St. Bart's. That was my first assignment. And so for the next three years, I was um, collect, you know, going to Paris and Milan and writing about fashion and interviewing supermodels and blah, 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 blah. And that's how it all began for me at Condé Nast, thanks to the great Emperor Cy Newhouse. Oh, not only that, it was your role and magazine. Lord, yeah. And after yeah. Lord, after Lord, Brady Carter came, and let's then he back, said to yeah. me, do you want to come to Vanity Fair? Hold on, hold on. Let's back up a little bit because I want people to understand. Um, what did the Rome, R-O-M-E, stand for? Was that an acronym or are you talking about the city of Rome? I, Rome, the acronym, you know, I was in boarding I was in college. This was Rome, actually, the idea came in my head when I was in college. My best friend and I would go to the cafeteria, we'd have lunch, and I would always say to him, when I go to New York City, I'm going to create Rome. I wanted to be like Andy Warhol's interview, but I didn't really have an act, you know, but I love what Rome connotes. Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, gotcha. you know, the Roman Empire, all that. But, and then I just decided to put periods in between the letters. And then later on, a famous writer, Bob Colicello, who was Andy Warhol's editor-in-chief at Interview, who grew to love Rome magazine, and he said to me, Rome, what does it mean? And he said to me, you should just call it Revelers of My Ego. Ooh, <laughs> nice. Revelers of My Ego. And, and, uh, and this was before social media. You've yeah. got to understand it, Augusta. 
So, levels of my ego. That's what everyone asks, what does wrong mean? I don't just tell them that. I like that. You That's very that good. Mean. I just love wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Would you by any chance have a copy of Rome? I'll have tons of copies of Rome. I have every... Well, <laughs> Rome now, actually, what I've decided to do is to, um, to have Rome, all the vintage copies of Rome magazine available for all the kids, all the cool kids, all the pop kids growing up right now in 2020 who want to understand the culture from way back in the day. So Rome is available on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O, patreon.com, which is kind of like the only fans of smart people. There you go. <laughs> We're not Good. selling penis or, or pussy on, on, Patreon, <laughs> on, on, on Patreon. Patreon Good. is for the creative souls of America. So you can find issues of Rome on Patreon. Okay, you heard it. P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash G-W-R-O. That's great. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Yeah, so we are, you are now uh, a contributor editor at Lua. Now, what is a contributing editor? A contributing editor is, um, back in the day, being, being a contributing editor for a Gloucester magazine was, was kind of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Was, is that like uh, a contract? The Holy Grail. Okay. The Holy Grail, which means if you're a contributing editor, you get a contract, which means you don't have to be scurrying around trying to find work. And, um, and you don't have to show up at the offices every day. To be a contributing editor, it goes to the, the creme de la creme of the journalists in the biz. And to be exclusive to one particular brand. So I was a contributing editor for four years at, at, at Lore, which, you know, I was the first contributing editor on the basket of Lore. It's a big deal. People don't understand that. It's such a big deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's and what I, I did that for four years, and then I became a contributing editor. And then I became a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. So being a contributing editor is a big deal. It means that you basically are on retainer. It's like the, the old Hollywood studio system, you know, back in the day when all the big stars were attached to a particular studio and, right. um, and kept on retainer. So that's basically what being a contributing editor at a major magazine was. That's great. It's my, not the same in 2020. That's not changed now, but that's what it was. I understand. Now, uh, after you stayed uh, at Lure for like four years, I think, you moved on to Vanity Fair right. as, a, as another contributing editor, right? Right. Uh, right. Did they, they approached you at this point? They did approach me at this point. But Graydon Carter, who was the legendary Vanity Fair editor, Graydon Carter, who I used to bother for a job before he was at Vanity Fair, he had a magazine called Spy. And I used to harass him all the time for work. He never gave me any work. But when he got to Condé Nast, his first call was to me. He says, well, I'm here now. What do you want to do? I said, well, I'm tired of writing about lipstick <laughs> for a law <laughs> magazine. I'm ready for a change. <laughs> I'm tired about mascara and lipstick. <laughs> and he says, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to reinvent the art of the, the, the interview. I said to Graydon Carter, I want to reinvent the art of the interview. I want to do what Andy Warhol did for interview. 
and get celebrities to talk about things they would never tell anybody else. And he said, okay, let's try. So my first assignment for, for Vanity Fair was to interview Fabio. Now, Fabio was a romance novelist cover boy. He was on Long the cover hair. of all these romance novels. Yes. Long hair. All hair and big tits. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, he looks so, kind of like me. <laughs> he looks like me. <laughs> <laughs> you think the best part of me? So Fabio, <laughs> Fabio, that was my first interview. They loved it, and that was the beginning of the beginning for the, for the next twenty-two years. Excellent. Let me ask you about the culture you found at Vanity Fair when you got there. What was it like? Oh, the culture of, oh, my God. You know, working at Condé Nast, you have to deal with the elites, the elites, the elitist snobismo. Everyone is a snob. Everyone has an opinion. <laughs> Everyone thinks they are, you know, the arbiter. They tell the world what to do. And... I look back and I think, you know what? Maybe if I'd grown up in America, I would have had a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> you know, maybe if I was a Negro, I was born in Georgia, who ended up working at a big magazine like Condé Nast. Maybe, you know, it would have been a different situation. But the fact that my Jamaican heritage and the way I was raised, I kind of sort of like, you know, that didn't bother me. The, the, the arrogance and the snobismo, and, and the attitude and the way you were looked down on. Because, yeah, let's be real. Let's, let's be honest. I mean, looking back now at, over all those years, there clearly was a sense of bias. Subtle racism, I'm sure. Huh? At the yeah. time, but look, yeah, but it never bothered me. I just went and did what I had to do and showed these bitches, you know what? You ain't better than me, bitch. You ain't better than me. Okay? In fact, I'm better than you. And that's the mentality that I maintained through all this time. But it was very different. The best thing about the fact about all this was I didn't have to go there every day. Because if I did have to show up at those offices every day, it probably would have been a different story. But I showed up for meetings. I showed up to my, my editors. And I was basically on my own, you know? And I got a check every month. <laughs> yeah. you know? so, but it was very hard. What was the hardest part? It was very hard. Looking back, maintaining the bravado and maintaining the sense that I'm just as good as you and I belong here. Because there are a lot of people who didn't think I belonged. There are a lot of people who think, oh, what is he doing here? Why does he have a contract? Who the hell is he? For 22 years, I was the only Negro at Vanity Fair. I was the only one you'd see. They probably had two more answering the telephone at the front desk right. or maybe someone's assistant. But I was the only contributing editor of color for decades. Amazing. Okay. You think things have yeah. changed uh, recently? Well, I'd hope so, but I don't think so. So we'll see. Yeah. You know, as Nelson Mandela always said, a luta continua. The struggle continues yes. and it always will. But you can't let that keep you down. You can't dwell on that. You can't have a chip on your shoulder. You can't say, oh, you know, play the victim. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. 
That's always been my mantra. Don't play the victim. Just show them why you belong. Now, um, in terms of your writing style, how would you categorize it? That's a good question, Augustus. My writing style. At Vanity Fair. I like to say that I write, my writing style is, is um, very much not the, not the typical journalistic writing style. I don't like, I don't write journalism. I mean, I've studied journalism, but I don't write journalism. I write, I write from the heart. I write, because when you write in journalism, you have to follow certain rules. You gotta, you know, it's a format, da da da, da boring. I threw that all out the window. So at the end, end of the day, I consider my writing style personal. It's gotta be, and I sometimes write in the third person, which is weird. People think, it, you know, why are you writing in the third person? But it's just the way I, I like to approach things. Right. My writing what? style is about being formal and informal and setting a new barrier, setting a new tone. I'm kind of like Hunter Thompson, you know, new journalism, the new way, you know. And I, I like to say to anyone who wants to be a writer who, or an artist or a poet, it's like, don't, don't follow the rules. Don't follow the rules. Just do your thing in a constructive way and, and see what the world thinks. You know, you can't you can't just sit and say, oh, well, this is the way it's been done, and I've got to follow this format. i got to do it like this. No. Throw it, all, throw it out the window. So why? But at the same time, maintain a certain sort of, maintain a certain form and foundation to what you're doing. Right. So while you were trained as a journalist, uh, would it be accurate to say you were more of a columnist with your unique style of writing in terms of the content and yes. approach? Yes. Yeah. So we, uh, I can always go back and say that I, I was a journalist, but I studied journalism, but I don't really write journalism. Okay. Um, your work has been uh, labeled at times as being controversial. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Is that accurate or, or what? Uh, am I controversial? I, I certainly am, but it's not something I set out to do. I don't set out to be controversial. I set out to get the facts. I set out to put you on the spot. I set out to get answers to my questions. I don't do it. Controversy is not something I court. But my be-all and my end-all is to get to the heart of the matter. And when, Augustus, when you have to sit and interview a celebrity, when you have to sit and interview a Hollywood legend, a Hollywood icon, who have been interviewed so many times by so many other writers and journalists, they know, they have, they're, they, they have it in their head how they're gonna handle this one, how they're gonna handle, you know, it's rote. So I always brought to the table a sense of trying to do something different to get them out of their comfort zone and show them that you've met your match when you met me. So it was not a sense of trying to be controversial, but in many instances, it ended up such. So you were after, which, right, so you were after truth or information and if the answer was exactly. controversial then that's on them i guess exactly i was after something that you never told any other writer before any other journalist who interviewed you i wanted to get something new something factual and and, uh, and many times something funny i wanted i wanted to show me the human side it's not like you know tom cruise which i never interviewed but he's the master of of manipulating Tom Cruise is the master of manipulating the journalist. He knows how to handle a journalist interviewing him. And, you know, 
from any other journalist, the fact that they can get to talk to Tom Cruise is enough for them. But for me, that's not enough. I want more. I want more. I want something I never heard before. I want something the world has never learned about you. So what was your goal when you were talking to uh, some of these celebrities and you were interviewing them? What were you trying to get out of them? The goal was always to get something new and interesting that they never revealed before. I wanted wit and wisdom. That was always my mantra. I wanted to be funny because at the end of the day, I want you to laugh. I think laughter is the best medicine. And so I always try to bring the element of wit and um, funny, informal. You know, I always wanted to bring the idea of having a conversation, maybe this thing that, even though that was the setting, but just, I wanted to try and think, we're just having drinks over dinner. That's the, that's the badinage I wanted from, from, the, in, from the interlocutor to the subject. Now, when you look back on all these years of doing these uh, interviews, what do you walk away with? Oh, my God. The sense that, oh, oh good, I got one done. I got one more done. <laughs> Move on to the next one, you know? Right. Um, this... I had no idea. You know, the, I mean, I've done interviews where, you know, some interviews are done on the phone. Some interviews are done in person. Most of, I like to do interview in person because I want to have the subject in front of me. I mean, but I never realized when I interviewed someone like uh, Ariana Huffington, when I flew to um, Washington, D.C. to interview Ariana Huffington way back way before she was the media mogul. When she, she was, was a wife. Senator's <laughs> wife. She was still a senator's wife. And I went to interview Ariana in D.C., flew down, and we sat at this really fancy restaurant, Augustus, really posh, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the Watergate district. And I turned to Ariana Huffington and I said, in the middle of the interview, I said, can we talk about the gay husband now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And Ariana Huffington grabbed the microphone off the table and ran through that restaurant in the Watergate district. I'll never forget it. Jaws were dropping left and right. She's like, what the hell's going on? She skidded through in her stiletto heels. And she says, George, this interview is over. She grabbed the microcassette of the tape recorder and ran. And she says, I'm done. I'm like, Ariana, give me back the tape. <laughs> it was all over page six the next day of the New York Post. <laughs> Ariana went eight for the tape. And she did. On top of that, she and, skipped uh, out of the bill. Oh, oh, she better not. <laughs> <laughs> Who paid for the bill? She, she probably called in the bill after that. <laughs> she never came back to the restaurant. I'm assuming she, all I was concerned about at that point was calling Graydon Carter, my editor-in-chief, and said, Graydon, I don't have an interview. <laughs> Ariana just took the tape. You had one, but it's gone. But after, that, after that, we kind of implemented the Ariana rule, Okay. There's always a tape recorder on the desk and one in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) You learn from experience. Yes. Um, Who was your best interview in your career? My best interview? Oh, my God. You know, I was just to say the the next one. The next one is going to be the best (laughs) one. The next next interview. But I always remember interviewing Carrie Fisher. And, And I would consider my interview Carrie Fisher probably in the top five. You know, Carrie Fisher, she was such an amazing woman. And she was so smart and she was so cool. She never got ruffled because I really put her to the grill. I put her 
through the paces when I interviewed her, Augustus. You know, I talked about what is it like waking up with someone dead next to you? You know, because she woke up one day in a, in a Hollywood compound next to a dead man who was her friend and, you know, was probably doing drugs, whatever. But he, she woke up the next morning, he was dead, cold, dead beside her. And you know what? When I answered that question, she didn't even blink. She just followed through with the answer. So I always appreciate and love Carrie Fisher because she was so not non, nonplussed, nonplussed. She yeah. was never offended by anything I asked. And well, we, a very smart woman. And I always, I always loved interviewing uh, Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of, of York, well, the former Duchess of York, who was very cool. I mean, this was after, the, you know, when she, the scandal with her being caught sucking some guy's toes, you know, after she left her, after Prince Andrew left her or whatever. But, you know, and, and Fergie was such a sweet, sweet woman. And what I loved, she called me up. She come back to New York City. She called me and said, can we have tea? So I did have tea with Fergie at the Mandarin Hotel, Mandarin Oriental. And she would send me gifts. She sent me this beautiful pink pashmina scarf. You know, I mean, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do that. I guess when but you're English. Did. So there's certain people I'll forget. Who was your worst interview? Oh, that probably would have to be Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway. What a mess. I know what you're talking she's about, the, but tell the, us why. <laughs> well, because Faye Dunaway was actually done on the telephone. She was in, she was in Los Angeles at her, her man's, and I was in New York City. But I, I kind of look back and think, thank God I wasn't there in person because she probably like flung that Ming bars at me, <laughs> you know? She kept hanging up the phone every five minutes. She'd like, I'm done. And hang up the phone. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And I had to call and cajole and beg, Miss Dunaway, please, I need to get this interview done. I'm begging you, please, just, please, let's try and finish it. But she's a mess. So she was the worst. She was a nightmare. Faye Dunaway was a nightmare. Absolute, absolute. And then there was John Bon Jovi, <laughs> who was okay. surprisingly, he was another nightmare. Why? And he was also, this was a phone or two. He was on the road. He was in Montreal, Canada. And on tour, I called him one afternoon to, for my column, and he was in such a bad mood. I could feel it. I could feel, could feel on the telephone line. This guy is like not going, you know, and I, he's just mean and like one word answers and it's like really snappy and really, really acting really like a crud, like a douche, as they'd say these days. And I said, so finally I said to him, What's going on? Are you having a bad hair day? <laughs> you know, the hair day. <laughs> and he went off the rails. And that interview never happened either. So then we had to, in, in, we had to implement the Bon Jovi rule. <laughs> and the Bon Jovi rule, <laughs> the Bon Jovi rule at Vanity in those days was we'll get the exclusive photograph shoot, the photo shoot done first, then GW can sit for the interview with the subject because he refused to have his picture taken after that interview. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But the funny thing was, the funny thing was, like six months later, six months later, I get this, this like letter in the mail. You know, people used to actually write letters in those days. <laughs> and, and I opened the letter and it was from John Bon Jovi. I don't know how he got my address, 
but he sent me a picture of him in a fright wig, right? It's <laughs> like, like in this fright wig. <laughs> because I said to him, are you having a bad hair day? Back in the day. <laughs> he sent me a picture of him in a fright wig. And he says, George, I apologize. Now I get it. Because I guess he continued to read my interviews and understand this is the way GW rolls, baby. You got to go with the role of George Wayne. And he got it. Well, there you go. At so, least he's picking. Cool. He's big enough to come back and apologize. Exactly. Um, oh, I love it. I love John Bon Jovi. Yeah, I like Stay it. Away, I'm not so. <laughs> and we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. these ones that are difficult that, to interview do you find them these are individuals what? the the ones who you find difficult to interview are they individuals who take themselves so seriously that they kind of uh lose touch with reality obviously, is that the issue obviously obviously that's what hollywood does to you you should you know you spend a lot of time there that's what you know when you interview like a legend a legend like a paid away old school legend you know, they, they surround themselves by psychophants and, you know, yes, men. This is what happens. This is just the nature of the beast. But um, hopefully, as time has gone on, these Hollywood stars today, well, I guess they realize that, you know, they don't, you know, people, you know, you can't even watch a movie today because, you know, whatever, you can't go to the movie theater. But, but beyond that, the fact that, Social media has changed the whole, that's up, you know, that's like upturned, up, you know, social media has like changed the whole dynamic, not only for my business, but for the Hollywood business, you know? So right. it's, it's a whole different, it's a different kettle of fish in this day and age. I agree. Is there one person that you wish you could have interviewed, but had, didn't get an opportunity? I would, you know, I guess the obvious question would have been Michael Jackson, but I really didn't care to interview Michael Jackson. Um, one interview, you mean, is one interview who, that's who you, dead or that, uh, in who, your, I mean, who individual who you wish you could have interviewed really, while you were working and they were alive, but didn't right. get an opportunity. Okay. okay. Um, wow. Diana Ross, <laughs> Diana Ross, I would love to interview Diana Ross, still would I still wear because she knows where all the bones are buried. She's, she's a legend <laughs> from the movie. And she knows everything, not only about Michael Jackson, but you know, about Barry Gordy, everybody else. So Diana Ross would be one. And um, I would love to interview Barack Obama. I would love to interview, I mean, I could have interviewed Donald, but I don't have any interest in Donald anymore. I mean, I've known the Trump family for so long, you know. I've known Ivanka since she was 11 years old. Ivana was kind of like my godmother. Ivana Trump was such an amazing woman in my life, and I still love her to this day. But you know what? I always say the next interview will be the best one. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in the mind, George. 
the next interview with the best one. <laughs> well, I think yours is pretty good right now, so I'm happy with that. Um, let's shift gears now. Let's talk about uh, Condé Nast and when they let you go. Um, what, what, what happened there? Give us your uh, perspective on that. That's a straight, I don't know. I mean, I think what happened was, what happened was that um, I was there for 22 years. Graydon, I, I went to write my book, thinking that, you know, I took six months or a year to write. I mean, they were still paying me, but I went to write the book. And then when I wrote the book, and the book was about set and published date was announced, Graydon Carter resigned the same day my book came out. They had a new editor-in-chief, and she wanted to, you know, have her own team. She wanted her own new stars. So all the people that were part of Green Carter's era didn't get their contracts renewed, including me. So it wasn't a personal thing. It was just that clean house, the mass purge, new editor-in-chief. She comes on board. She wants to do her own thing. And we leave it at that because, I mean, I think that was stupid. I think this woman, that's now the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, she should have kept me. I'm just saying personally. I should, there's no reason why George Wayne, who had the highest Q rating of any writer at Condonance, at Vanity Fair, should have been let go like this. But it is what it is. I so I'm working on my memoirs. You know, and you, know, you can't let look back and wonder what if, blah, 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 blah. And who reads Vanity Fair now anyway? <laughs> the magazine right. the, whole, the whole magazine world has changed so much there's so much flux there's so much uncertainty Condé Nast is not what it was when I first started Condé Nast is a whole different dynamic now everything's Ooh. changed the world's changed so what is it so tell us now what it is today from what it was everything's changed social media has changed as, as like upheaved the whole world of media you know, everyone thinks they're an arbiter. Everyone thinks they have the point of view. Everyone thinks that they can have their own opinion. At the heyday of the magazine world, we were the opinion makers. We were the ones who said, this is what you do, this is what you wear, this is how you live. Now everyone thinks they can do that. So gotcha. it's a whole different ballgame. So now the social media actually provides a platform for expressing their own views. While in the past, that yeah, was not everyone, the case. You know, the peanut gallery now thinks that they, you know, they have an <laughs> opinion. Everyone, and, and they're like, so, they're so gung-ho about their bravado, you know. Right. I mean, and I, I don't have time to listen to the <laughs> peanut gallery. <laughs> I hear you. you know, I'm happy and always will be. And that's the end of it. Gotcha. That's just how I feel. In the introduction, <clears throat> I, I gave you data that the average age of uh, Vanity Fair was 45.2 year old white females. Did you ever realize that uh, these women identify with your views or that you identify with them? I didn't even know that demographic. I don't know where you <laughs> found that. <laughs> yeah. Publisher. Yeah. The magazine publisher. You've impacted 45.2 year old women, white women for 22 years. Well, I think, you know what, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's the reason why all of a sudden now, of late, for the last year and two years, that you're seeing more black, black people on the cover of, of Vogue. You're seeing more black people on the cover of Vanity Fair. But it, to me, that all just reeks of tokenism. 
True. Let's, now, let's, let's stay with that. Is, right. Let's stay with that because uh, one of the comments that uh, you had made with uh, Andre Talley was that, uh, quote, this is your words, uh, when you were at Vanity Fair, you said, quote, my salary was peanuts. They were charging six yeah. figures a month to advertise across from my page, and my salary per year was half of what they were charging per month. You said that to page six. Now, so what was going on there? Well, I didn't know this. I mean, I didn't know that I was kind of like, you know, being paid peanuts. I didn't know. I was just happy for the opportunity. Don't you understand, Augusta? When I told you I was in a black face in the room, I was just happy to be there. I wasn't thinking that I was being so underpaid. I didn't think about that. And I was stupid in the sense that I didn't have, I did not have an agent. I handled my own contract. So whatever they brought to me, I just took it. But other, writer, other writers had the agents who were like, at photographers who were like, this is what he needs. Stupid me, I didn't think about that. I didn't I think see. about it. So yeah, that was the situation. And it's fact. I was paid peanuts. I don't want to be angry, looking back in anger, but you know what? It is what it is, and right. the world needs to know. So, so that people can, the listeners can have an idea, in terms of what you should have been paid. I mean, were you paid forty percent of what you thought you should have been paid, or fifty percent, or what was the uh, figures? I that? I just thought I should have been paid a lot more. I should have been treated much better. I got peanuts, and you know, it kind of. I was a little ambivalent, or, you know, leery is a better word than ambivalent. I was a little leery when page six called me that, that when you read, you know, this thing, when Andre Talley, this was the Andre Talley furor when he wrote his memoirs and revealed all this stuff. And, you know, I took that with a grain of salt, Andre Leon Talley, then his spiel, his, <laughs> his uh, whatever it was. Because you- Andre Leon Talley really... I'm really until didn't help other pe- black kids at Cundinas. He was only right. about himself. So, right. Whatever uh, he says to me, is like, whatever. Goodbye. Yeah, he also he said in in in, a, in his book, I guess, that um, Cundinas was incapable of seeing quote the world through black eyes. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yes. Yes and no. But you have to understand. You know, this is a different. This was. Andre Leon Talley was, was, was the, the, the first prominent contributing editor of color, the first prominent columnist at Vogue, of Cunningham, of color. He was the first. Because of Andre Leon Talley, I mean, when I was in boarding school and, you know, reading about Andre Leon Talley, he was, the, he, was a, he was an interviewer at the time. I got it. I mean, he, he Andre, we can't, we can't not acknowledge the fact that Andre Leontali and, and um, he, sh- he kind of shattered the color ceiling. There was, I don't know what the glass ceiling, but he kind of shattered it in the sense that he was kind of the first person of color who was able to be, to be that prominent and to be that recognized. But he didn't do anything to help the kids that were coming up behind him, including me. He never did anything. He never helped me. He never, uh, you know, acknowledged and said, oh, George, you know, I'm going to take you to a fashion show with me. George, I'm going to introduce you to blah, blah, blah. Come have dinner. He never did that. So for him to now come out and sort of like have this all 
book, which is fine. I'm happy his book did so well. But um, to me, it's just like hypocritical because he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to sort of nurture and embrace and develop the talent of color that fallen behind at Condé Nast. And even though he was also a fellow Islander because he was from Jamaica. Um, no, he's not. He was born in North Carolina. No, really? He's not Jamaica. He's not West Indian. Oh, okay. He, he's from North he's from Carolina. Or South Carolina. I'm sorry, South Carolina. Okay. okay. Well, I stand corrected on that. So you have, you have certain feelings about Andre. Uh, I guess uh, he has moved on from the... I still love Andre, but Andre's a bitch. Yeah, you Andre said... Leon Talley is a, <laughs> he's a phony baloney. He's a phony baloney. End of story. <laughs> and okay. he got a house. I mean, the good thing about Andre Leon Talley was that he got condemned to buy him a house. I didn't get that. So for that, I always hate it. Well, he must have a, he must have an agent why you didn't, huh? And I went to her, got him a house. So he was lucky. Fuck him. <laughs> right, let's let's uh, talk about your uh, book that you wrote, um, Anyone Who's Anyone. Tell us about that because right. that's a very interesting topic that was, as well. That, that was kind of uh, called my quasi-memoir, Anyone Who's Anyone. It's a great book. I hope people can order it. It's still available. It's online or any great bookstore. It's called Anyone Who's Anyone. The Astonishing Celebrity Interviews, 1987 to 2017, published by HarperCollins in 2018. It came out 2018, basically. And um, it's kind of like a compendium of some of my greatest hits for, for Vanity Fair and my own personal take about meeting these people and talking about them. And as you said, the New York Times gave it a great review. I didn't get a great advance. So hopefully my next book, they'll give me an even better one. But it did well. It, did, it didn't make the Times bestsellers list, but I think my next book will. Absolutely. And, give uh, us, it's a give, must read. Yeah, give us some slice. Love popular culture. Give us some slice. If you love popular culture. Yeah. Go ahead. If you love popular culture, you love celebrity interviews, I think this is a great read. I mean, we have interviews. I mean, my interviews with um, Carrie Fisher, which we talked about. We have Mark Wahlberg. We have, um, who else is in there? So many other people. We have the Fabio. It's kind of like my, my, I wanted to have this book because I want to have a really formal document, a book, a hardcover book, so that, you know, generations coming, a kid who studied journalism or is studying journalism right now could walk into a bookstore and say, you know what? I heard about this guy, George Wayne. He, I hear he's crazy, but... He did the best in the use of Vanity Fair. Let's see. Let's, you know, it's, it's, it's a treatise. It's something to have. It's to have a new bookshelf. It's a document of, um, of uh, I like to say, even better than the interviews you ever read in Playboy magazine. Because Playboy magazine kind of set the template for the celebrity interview back in the day. And this book kind of like is up there with them. Because there's a whole slate of major important showbiz folk who um, I had to get permission from a lot of them to get to be in this book. And that was what drove me crazy because the process of, make, of having this book published was so traumatic because the lawyers, between the lawyers of Candy Nass and the lawyers of these people. So I ended up putting a lot of dead people in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a very tedious operation because of the process. Not because and that's of why this next book is not going to be so tedious. The next one is going to be my memoir. 
I'm going to do my verse, my own memoir. And this one, you know, I'm just going to let it, I'm just going to let it rock, baby. So that's what I'm working on now. Excellent. Anyone in the of book course. that is angry at you at this point? In the book? Yeah, the one. Anyone uh, about anyone. Uh, no. No, because there are Greeks be in the book. No. Okay. no. So I don't think so. But I think the next book, there'll be a few angry people. Okay. <laughs> no holding back now, the next right? Book, which is my work in progress, my memoirs. It's called Simply Georges. Oh, I like that. Simply Georges. Before Simply I forget, George. yeah, before I forget, you're going to be, you are starting your own podcast, right? Yes. So I'm, let's I'm, give out that information now. I'm starting my own podcast. It's, gonna, it's in the works. I'm, you know, taping a few episodes. I want to, you know, I want to do something different with my pod. But it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be called 10Q, 10 Questions and More, The George Wayne Show. So it's going to be available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, everywhere. So just stay tuned for that. And when you see 10Q, the G. George Wayne Show, you know, it's me. Okay. When can we expect that to come out so it, people can it, have an idea? It's January 1st, 2021. Okay. January 1st, 2021. Everyone look out for George GW's thank podcast. Thank you, the George Wayne podcast. There you go. There you go. Um, based on your life experience, which, which is vast, if you were to give a young up-and-coming actor, actress, or journalist one life advice, what would that be? Fearless. To be fearless to be flawless. Fearless and flawless. Fearless to be flawless. You know, okay. fearless. Fearless to be flawless. In other words, be yourself. Go with your gut. Follow your dream. Go with your gut. I say that three times. Go with your gut. Go with your gut instinct. And um, let, it, let it flow. Just let it flow. Never let anyone doubt you. If you do, if don't doubt yourself. If you believe in something in your gut, in your heart, and you think this is the way to go, just go with it. Just do it. Go for it. That's well, thank my you. advice. Thank you. And on, and on that inspiring note, we thank G.W. George Wayne for his words of wisdom and his time for being on our podcast and sharing all the insights and observations and his experience throughout his lifetime, beginning from Beautiful islands to New York City, where it is today. Thank you, George. Thank you, Augustus. I really love this conversation, and uh, I really appreciate the time you took to get in touch. So, thank you. Thank you. Shining star for you to see what your life can